Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We're turning in the Word of God this morning to Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. This is the Word of the Lord. Now in the morning, when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there be ever any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. And seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. It will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word, and we ask you to add your spirit to it so that it may not be my words, but it may be the power of the word of God with power and conviction and strength by the spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a passage about fruitfulness, the entire passage about fruitfulness. This is a passage about what God wants from us, the entire passage. This is a passage about how we are enabled to be fruitful. Not the entire passage, the second half. This is a passage about the glory of God and the way that he is displaying it in the world and how he wants to display it in your life. The entire passage. There, there is nothing quite like a fig tree that's not bearing figs or a peach tree that's not bearing peaches. When my grandparents came to live in our house in, oh, in Chicago in the mid-1960s, one of the things that my, my nana wanted was to have fruit trees in the backyard. And so she planted a dwarf apple, two dwarf peach trees. That apple tree continued to give fruit for 40, 50 years. It's probably still doing so today. The peach trees, never a peach. Not one. Never in all the years. And eventually, they were cut down. They were worthless. Some trees are good for, for shade. I, I grew up in a house that had southern exposure, and on the south side, it had huge maples and oaks. And I remember reading in the Chicago Tribune back in the 1990s that one good tree that cast shade over your house was worth 10 degrees of air conditioning in the summer. The shade of one tree. Big tree is good for shade and good for lumber. A big oak tree, a big maple, lots of uses. You get a, a big pine tree and it's beautiful. And it's also good for wood, and you can cut it, and you can make a house out of it. You can build a, a stable from it. You can do all sorts of things with the wood. But a fruit tree, a fig tree, it's not a, a very outstanding tree. It's, it's not a, a tree that's very good for burning. It's, there's not a lot of wood. It's not a, a tree that's good for lumber. Not a lot of wood. It's not a tree that's actually all that beautiful. It's a fig tree. But... If it produces figs, 
It's a glorious tree. This is a fig tree that Christ walks by on his way into Jerusalem and he seeks a fig from it and he does not find fruit on it. He doesn't find fruit. Now, over the years, we have talked about bearing fruit for God and we've, we've been clear and rather insistent on saying that children are part of that fruit that God desires. This morning, I speak to a congregation that loves children and that has embraced that truth. And so I'm rather specifically not speaking about at least specifically of childbirth this morning because we are of one mind. God has given us an understanding that children are a gift from the Lord and the the fruit of, of our bodies that God loves. There is something that is even more important than children and that is children who love the Lord. That is children who are fruit for eternity. That is the bearing of fruit that is part of life that goes beyond the simple act of procreation. And God loves children, but God loves godly children. God loves children who are raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And your doing that is something that goes far beyond the the act of bearing a child whether it's the pleasurable act of conception or the painful act of, of labor, these things are part of that, but they are, they are just a rather small part of the fruitfulness that God wants. They're essential to it, but they are not the thing. So we are not speaking this morning as we look at this passage about this fig tree and Christ's response to it about bearing children, understanding that God has given you a love for this, understanding that God has granted us this understanding, this this joy of valuing what God values in childbirth. And so we have before us what might initially seem a strange and, and frightening or fascinating or something, but also somewhat arbitrary incident that leads to an example of the power of prayer and a teaching on the power power of prayer. Now, the general approach to this passage that I've heard and that I think most of us are aware of reflects a view that divides this story in half. It is clearly a complex story And it is clearly a rather negative story, at least in its beginning. And so what we do and what we tend to do in this passage beyond just us is to to take it and and divide the first and second half and not to realize that they're a part of a whole. We see the first part and we go, yeah, well, and then we leave it kind of alone and we jump to the second part where Jesus speaks about the power of prayer, having the disciples mention to him, whoa, that thing died and uh, we take what he says about prayer and we forget what it's tied to what leads to it we look at the second act and we forget the first this is not a simple story nor is it primarily a story about the power of prayer more fundamentally this is a story about what our focus in prayer should be what we should want in prayer the kind of prayer that God grants power what God wants from us Now it's clear here from our passage that Matthew wants us to see this passage, these two portions of scripture connected. He wants us to see them linked together, 
not just as cause and effect, but in some even more fundamental way than that, that it has two parts and that together they form a whole. And the whole is a unit, not a divided thing. The reason this is clear is that Matthew, in his writing about this day and these events, presents it as a unified whole. He ties the judgment on the tree and the subsequent teaching on prayer by Christ by relating them as one kind of seamless event when in fact they didn't take place at the same time. So Matthew has telescoped events here and brought them together for the purpose of clearly letting us know how tied they are and that they are a unit. We know the actual chronology of the events that are related here from Mark's telling of the story. And it is obviously the same story in Mark takes place the last week of Christ's life. It has the same cast of characters, the disciples, Jesus, the fig tree, has even the same words. But in Mark we read, on the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then Mark tells us the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, which takes place between the two halves. Matthew tells it out of order. We can't assume sequence, chronological sequence in the Gospels, unless it says it's there. Matthew has brought these two events out of order. He's already told the story of the cleansing of the temple so that he will show us how tied this, this finding of the fig tree and not receiving fruit from it, and then the teaching on prayer is. <clears throat> So we go on in Mark and he says when evening came they would go out of the city as they were passing by in the morning. So somehow going out of the city they didn't notice but coming in again the next morning 24 hours later they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded Peter said to him Rabbi look fig tree which you cursed has withered and Jesus answered saying to them have faith in God Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. So we learn a couple additional things here from Mark. First, this event in which Jesus curses the fig tree took place in the morning of the day that he cleansed the temple. In the morning, he starts out from Bethany. In the morning of that day, he sees the fig tree. He looks for a fig. He finds it barren, and he curses it. Second, the disciples notice that that shriveled tree, not that same day, but the next morning, following the cleansing of the temple. Now, either the night before it was dark, or they took a different path back or something, but they did not see the fig tree because it's the next day, the next morning, the next trip in that they see it and notice that it has died. Third, adding a detail that those who lived in Jerusalem at the time would have known they, uh, this is obviously the last week of Jesus Christ, the week prior to the Passover, the feast, it takes place in early spring. It takes place in April, sometimes March. Um, those are the, that's the period of the year when the Passover takes place. So the people who live in Jerusalem are going to know that this was an event that took place early in the spring. Now, People in Jerusalem, if they're farmers or if they're aware of the markets, understand as well that figs have generally two fruit seasons. They have two harvests. The first, which grows from the the year before growth, reaches maturity and is harvested in late May through the whole month of June. The second takes place in, in, in September. 
So this is the sequence of events that Matthew telescopes into one event in our passage. And what he does here is technically called elision. He makes one event of two because he glides over what goes between. We have then two stunning stories, two intensely interesting stories and important lessons that are tied at the hip and actually come down to one story and one lesson. The first story and lesson is found in Jesus seeking for figs on a fig tree two months before it would ever be in season. This is a unique event in the Gospels. And perhaps, though we can't be certain where Scripture is silent, it may be unique in the entire life of Christ. It is unique and more than unique. It is startling. It is surprising for a number of reasons. Let me first say, as we start looking at this, that it should not be surprising to us that God expects fruit. There is nothing at all surprising about God expecting fruit from his creation, and you're part of his creation, and I am. This fig tree is part of his creation. There's nothing that is more stated and more clear in Scripture that God wants his creation and created his creation for the sake of fruit. God commands, be fruitful and multiply. He says it over and over and over again. I mean, there is no command, perhaps, that's given more frequently in the Bible than this. Be fruitful and multiply. It said the end of creation to all of creation. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. It said to Adam and Eve, fill the earth and subdue it. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule over creation. It's said in a variety of times in the Old Testament. Noah and his family come out of the, the ark after the flood. God says to them three times in two chapters, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Three times to Noah and his family. Just like twice to Adam and Eve and the earth's the first creation. He sends it to Ishmael on sending him out from his father Abraham. Be fruitful and multiply. It's not just a command for the chosen people, it's for all people. The command that Isaac gave to Jacob before sending him away to his brother-in-law Laban to find a wife because Ishmael hated him or Esau hated him. Jacob said to him, or Isaac said to Jacob, be fruitful and multiply, go and bear fruit. When Jacob was renamed Israel by God, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. When the people of Israel entered the promised land, God's promise was that he would make them fruitful and multiply them when they obeyed him. In Jeremiah, God promises captive Israel, captive Zion, that he will make her fruitful and multiply her. So there's no question in the Bible that God loves fruit. He loves the fruit of trees. He loves the fruit of marriage. He loves the fruit of the Spirit. He loves fruit, and he has created you to bear fruit. And your happiness, your true happiness, not just as a Christian, but as a creation of God, is found in bearing fruit. God has made it obvious that he loves fruit and that he wants us to bear fruit by making the process of bearing fruit the most beautiful and happy process on earth. So when a young man and a young woman fall in love, is there anything more attractive? And is there any feeling that's more joyful than realizing I love her, she loves me? And it's the beginning of a life of fruit.
all the pleasures, and they're not just sensual, but there are great sensual pleasures that surround bearing fruit, aren't there? God has made it attractive because he loves fruit. And when the fruit is born and the pain is incurred, God makes those children lovely. And you look at them and you say, oh God, you have given me something so precious here. And you delight in their smell. You love their looks. You bury your face in your, their stomach and you blow on it and you just love the feel of that smooth stomach against your gristly cheek. And you just, it's a tactile, it's a sensory pleasure. And I'm not talking about the act that produces it. It's just a joy. And to have children grow and come to love God and grow in the nurture of God, and it makes life worthwhile. You can die if your children love God. You have done what God wants, and you have propagated a godly seed, and something is going on that is more important than you. God loves fruit. Not just the fruit of our marriages. God has made fruit beautiful everywhere, the, the blossom that inaugurates the process of bearing fruit. Beautiful. The rose that becomes the hip. The, the cherry blossoms that become the cherries. The beauty of the blossom. Then the taste of the fruit. The glory of it. It's just immense. You drive by the, the fields of the Midwest. And um, it struck me that people call the Midwest boring. And they love the ocean. And they love the mountains. And I think, no, it's, it's crazy. The Midwest, the area you live right now, is the most intensely beautiful spot on earth because it is the richest ground that does the most for human beings of any ground. The places that people talk about, the Rockies, the Grand Canyon, some of you were there this week, the ocean, they're, they're sterile, they're barren. This ground fills with grain, watered by God, feeds the nation. It is glorious. It is beautiful. When you see a field full of wheat or a field full of corn at the end of the season, it is majestic in a way nothing else is. Children are a fruitful gift. But even more than children, spiritual fruitfulness is glory. It's glory in the eyes of God. It's glory in the eyes of man. It's not glory to have 18 children and to have your home broken apart and them all go to foster homes. No glory, none. It's glory when your children love God. It's when we bear spiritual fruit. The bearing of spiritual fruit is not implicitly and directly connected with the bearing of children. There are many, many fruitful people in this world who'll never have a child and they will put the woman who has a full house nursery to shame by their fruitfulness she who is barren has more children than the one who has children the bible says so you think about the beauty of joseph this this handsome young man this powerful young man and his saying no to potiphar's wife resisting the fruit the the ill-begotten fruit that she wants and you say oh no there is beauty incredible beauty in that spiritual act of fruitfulness 
incredible beauty in God's eyes and in ours. The virgin daughter of Jephthah, whose father had vowed to sacrifice the first thing that came through his door when he came home after God gave him victory in battle and his daughter is the first one to come out. That virgin daughter saying to her father, no father, do what you promised, but give me several months to go into the hills and to mourn my virginity. There, no children, glory and fruit. The beauty of spiritual holiness is not just seen in physical children. It's often not seen. But it is seen in families where there is love, where there is holiness. Generations growing to know and love God. Nothing is more joyful or beautiful than a young man or a young woman setting a path for righteousness and doing it together. Nothing. Spiritual children are the church's greatest fruit and her greatest joy. And when the church bears fruit, there is no greater joy, no more beautiful thing than the baptism of someone who has come to know the Lord or the baptism of our children in the knowledge that God has called them. Over and over, Jesus calls his disciples to bear good fruit. He speaks of the seed on good soil producing fruit. He says, the seed that is on good soil produces fruit. You are good soil if you produce fruit. If the word of God comes into your life and changes it. He tells his disciples, so you'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit that God desires more than any in your life. He desires holiness. He desires sacrifice. And this fruit will infiltrate all of your life and your children's lives and the people around you and your family. But it is the fruit that he wants from you. And it is by this fruit that the world is one to Christ. I say this because in American culture, there is the idea that it's okay to look fruitful, but never bear fruit. In fact, looking fruitful, looking like you're bursting with sexual potency is a positive good, but actually let that potency go to seed actually create and people say oh now look you have lost that look of potency you're actually bearing fruit as though it's the look that's important and not the fact so American culture says I'm going to look fruitful I will exercise so I'm bursting with vitality I will dress to show off how fruitful my body is, how potent it is sexually. I will show that I am a man possessed of testosterone by my long, manly beard. But I'm going to spend the vigor of my manhood on porn. I don't want to get encumbered by children. I don't want to be encumbered by a relationship. I want to look like something. 
But boy, it's no fun actually doing it. And this is true of the American church as well. Where we say, I will claim Christ. I will go to the right church in town. I will read the right books. I will worship with passion. I will go to star-studded conferences. And I will raise my arms in passion to God. But when it comes to actual fruit-bearing, no thanks. I don't want to die. We remember that Jesus said, unless a grain of seed fall to the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. And we say, no, 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 I don't want to die. God has said, death is the way we produce. Death is the way that we recreate. Death is the way. We must die. We want to look fruitful, not die. We want to look potent, not die. We want to look like we have all that God could give us, but we don't want to take the risk of actually giving up to God, giving up our money, giving up our looks, giving up our reputations, giving up our jobs because we actually spoke about Jesus rather than just sort of wore it as a private badge. So this generation, this day in the life of the American church, this passage has the deepest possible significance for. Five truths that jump from these words and the actions that are taken in this passage by Jesus. First, recognize, and it's surprising, but Jesus actually judges the fig tree. You can spin this any way you want, but you can't avoid the fact that what Jesus does here is something that, that takes place nowhere else at all in the ministry of Christ, because he judges. He puts to death. He renders judgment. In fact, throughout his ministry, in his years of working with people, Jesus routinely rejects judging. He actively tells the people who come to him and say, hey, judge between me and my brother. We've got an estate and we're fighting over it. You judge. He says, who made me a judge over you, man? Actually resists judging, rejects judgment. When the woman is caught in adultery and they ask him, well, what should we do with her? And he tells his story and asks them which of them has not sinned. And they all go away. He finally looks to the woman who he's left alone with. And he says, where are those who judged you? She says, well, they're not here. Then he says, neither do I judge you. This is Jesus. Neither do I judge you. Go and sin no more. When the disciples want to call down fire on the Samaritan village that refused to receive them on their way to Jerusalem, he tells the disciples... You don't know of what father you are. We're not going to call down fire on the Samaritans. He tells the disciples when he sends them out to go and preach his kingdom. If you go from one city to another and you're rejected, make sure you don't have a sword with you so that you feel like you can respond with anger. You're not to judge. And when Nicodemus comes to ask him about eternal life, he says to Nicodemus, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is unique. Jesus judges. Jesus casts to death. Jesus puts a fig tree. He sentences it as king and lord to death. The only display of judgment that I'm aware of in all of Christ's ministry. Second, it's surprising because Jesus does not bring forth fruit from the tree, but 
punishes a lack of fruit. Now, was Jesus capable of bringing forth fruit from the tree? Of course he was. He brought the loaves and fishes to feed the thousands on two different occasions. He told his disciples, cast your stuff out on this side of the boat or try one more time. And each time their catch was so great, the, the fish that they could barely get it to shore. He turned the, the water into wine. Jesus could have said to the fig tree, put out a fig for me. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Time after time, Jesus miraculously supplies food. Here, he's hungry. He seeks fruit. There is none. And so he kills the fig tree. He puts it to death. And it seems almost selfish, doesn't it? He wants something. He desires something. It's not there. So wham, death. Why not give the tree fruit? He could as easily have done that. Why punish fruitlessness? Why does he do this? Third, this is a surprising act. It's surprising in its judgment. It's surprising in that he doesn't just give it fruit. It's surprising because in punishing the tree, Jesus is actually punishing nature. Jesus' only act of judgment recorded in the Bible is not against man, but nature. He expects fruit from this tree. When it's missing, he judges. He never judges a man in his earthly ministry, but he does judge nature. This is a visual parable. It's not an arbitrary act. Nature suffers here as a lesson to you. This is a warning. Jesus is saying something. Jesus, throughout the Bible, reveals that he has power to overcome nature. Nature is nothing to him. He can make the winds stop. He can heal the diseases of nature. He can calm the storm, multiply loaves and fish, turn, transmute water into wine. All of these are miracles against nature, miracles involving nature, centering on nature. And they are intended to show man whom Christ does not force and whose will Christ does not ever violate the extent of his power and its character. So in dealing with nature, Jesus is showing us his power and what he wants. But he coerces nature without coercing you. It is your decision. It is your choice. Will you bear fruit for Jesus? Fourth, it's surprising because it seems so unreasonable. It seems so unreasonable and so out of character, not just because it doesn't fit our expectation of Christ. We think Christ shouldn't act like this, but it also doesn't seem fair expectation of a fig tree, does it? After all, it's the simple inescapable truth that Mark lets us know that it was not the season for figs. He goes to a fig tree in winter and looks for a fig and finding none, he kills the tree. So we have here the creator, the God of the universe in human flesh, looking to a fig tree he made. He formed it according to its kind. He made its nature. He created it. He sustains it. This is his tree. And now he wants its fruit because he's hungry. And it says to him, no, I don't have any. And you think, no harm, no foul, just a tree, uh, 
insensate tree, a non-cognitive object. It's non-sentient. It's not, it doesn't have a brain. And so it's just a tree, Jesus. But Jesus says, no longer will there ever be fruit from you. Next morning, the tree isn't just sterile. It's dead. Dead from the roots up. Fair. Is it kind? Is it just? Is it loving? Is this the Jesus you were taught about in Sunday school? Fair, kind, just, loving. This is the God you claim to serve. The God you claim to worship. Does he look like the God you thought you were worshiping? Give me fruit. Give me fruit. I don't care what season it is. Give me fruit. This is Jesus. Many, many people, when he returns, no longer the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but king of kings and lord of lords, riding on a white charger with a sword coming out of his mouth and a trail of blood behind. Many, many people, when he sits upon his throne with all judgment given him and earth and heaven fleeing from his presence yet finding no place to hide, Many, many people, when he rises in judgment to separate the sheep from the goats, rewarding those beloved by his Father with eternal life and casting those who rejected him on earth into the lake of fire, many, many will say, who are you, Lord? Why didn't we know you were like this? When were you like this in our midst? When did we know you like this to reject you like this? We would have done otherwise had we known. But they did know. They just didn't accept it, and they didn't act on it. This Jesus is no surprise. This is the Jesus spoken of by the unfaithful servant in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Remember the parable. A master goes away and leaves talents with his servants that they're to use and invest in his absence and give the return to him when he returns. Servant, the first servant, doubles his allotment. The second servant doubles his allotment. He comes to the final servant. This servant had taken the talent that the master had given to him. He had invested it by digging a hole in his basement in the ground and putting it down there and hiding it. It produced no return. Well, when the master came back and inquired of his servants how they had done, the first one said, I doubled it. The second one said, I doubled it. The third one says, Master, I knew you. You're a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here, have what is yours. The master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, Take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Is it unfair for God to expect figs from a fig tree when it's not seasoned? Is it unfair? And of course, if God can be bound by the season of the year so that it's unfair in certain seasons. Doubly so with you and me, right? It's not my season, God. I haven't had my season in the sun yet. I don't want to give up my life at this point to you. 
One day, one day it will make sense. One day the season will come. But right now, God, it's not my season. Imagine Sarah saying, God, you, you had the season when I was young and fertile. You had the season and you let it go by and now I'm 90 and you're saying it's my season to bear a son? No. Thank you, God. No. Imagine Abraham saying to God when he's 75 and told to go for a new country, God, it's not the season. That's a young man's job. That's for the young men. That's not for me. Imagine Caleb and Joshua coming back from the promised land and saying, yep, we agree with the rest. It's not the season for sighting giants. These are big giants. Wait until their bloodline gets dulled down a little bit. Maybe then we can go in and take them on. But this isn't the right season to go into the promised land. Imagine little David, the little guy who comes in from the fields and says, why aren't you fighting the giant, guys? Why aren't you fighting the giant? And they say, you punk, go back to the sheep. And he'd say, oh, okay, it isn't my season to fight giants. I'm not going to fight giants. Or Mary saying to God, to the Holy Spirit, to the angel, hey, wait a second. It's not my season for baby bearing. I'm a virgin. No, I'm not going to do it. It's going to ruin my life. Jesus tells a parable of a wedding banquet where those who are invited give excuse after excuse, seemingly good excuses, fine excuses, really upstanding reasons that they're not going to come. I bought a field. I have a new oxen. I have things to do. Got to take care of my parents. Got lots on my plate right now. Maybe someday I'll come. You remember what Isaiah says of the fruitfulness of God's people, Zion? This prophecy in Isaiah 66. Isaiah writes, before she travailed, that is, went into labor. Before she even went into labor, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion, the people of God, travailed, she also brought forth her sons. The very day of her labor, the very day of the conception, she brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? God says, you will bear fruit. It doesn't matter the season. Will you trust God with your life? Will you trust him with your timetable? Will you trust him with your money? Will you trust him with your home? Will you open your home to those in need? The Bible says that by so doing, some entertained angels unaware. Lot was saved because he opened his home. The fruit of his action was the salvation of his life. Will you trust him and accept that you must die if you're going to bear fruit? That you're going to die the death of correcting your children even when you want them to love you, of having them angry at you despite your desire for them to be your friend. 
Will you die the death of having your home beaten to pieces? How proud I am when I go to your home, so many of you, and I see the floors gouged and scraped, and I know those gouges and scrapes are there because you have people to your house week after week. Those are badges of honor, every bit as rich as the metal that you get, the purple heart for a wound in earthly battle. God is the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. Now we close our passage with the promise of Jesus that if you say to a mountain, be cast into the heart of the sea and believe it will be done, so it will happen. It's a great promise, but a promise in a context. A promise that is tied to and explains the parable of the fruit tree. It may not seem possible for you to bear fruit. The possibility may seem cut off from you the wrong season, the wrong circumstance, the wrong call for your life right now. God is the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of your life, sovereign over every circumstance and season. And his desire for you is that you be like the fruit trees in heaven that bear their fruit in season and out of season. There is no season. They're always fruitful. His desire for you is fruit today, fruit tomorrow, fruit forever. There is no season for fruitfulness in the Christian life in faith. Every season is fruitful. The question is, will we go to God in obedience? Will we go to God in faith expecting that he will give us fruit, allow us to bear fruit, even when that fruit seems out of the question for us? Will we pray in belief that bearing fruit for God is worth our lives? Will we ask God to cast the mountain, the mountain, the mountain of our selfishness, the mountain of our pride, the mountain of what we want into the heart of the sea so that we are rendered fruitful for him? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Father, that you will make us a fruitful people. We ask that we will take to heart this, this miracle, this awful miracle, Father, remembering that you have said that you will cast into the fire those who do not bear fruit. May we be fruitful. May our lives be rich for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.